as has been mentioned several times already in this service, we are a few days away from Christmas. And what we're going to do now for the next few minutes uh, before noon, we're going to give our attention uh, to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And my, my hope for us, my desire for us, is that we would once again have some sense of the gravity of what has happened. We'd have some sense of the glory of God, the wisdom of God, the generosity of God, and what it is that he's done in sending Christ. Um, sometimes it is uh, especially hard uh, to feel the weight of the incarnation at this time of year. I, I'm increasingly grateful that we do celebrate Christmas, that there is this time of the year where we our attention collectively is focused on the incarnation, because it is a glorious thing. In the same way that I'm thankful for our, our missions conference that gives us a time every year to focus our attention on missions, to be reminded of something that is so important but sometimes can get lost in the shuffle. But the incarnation is a marvelous thing. When God himself became man. Uh, my plan for us this morning is to, to consider it and try to get a sense of the gravity of it. As our brother Don mentioned a few minutes ago as he was reading from Isaiah, and I read at the beginning of the service, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the union of divinity and humanity in the person of the God-man, is something that was prophesied about long before, uh, before Isaiah. As I said, Isaiah was 3,000 years ago, but long before that, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord made it very clear that he was going to send someone who would be born of the human race, who was going to restore what was broken at the fall. In Genesis chapters 12 and 17, all through Abraham's life, he makes it very clear that it will be through Abraham that the seed will come and all the nations will be blessed. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes it clear that it will be, it will be through King David specifically and his family. In Isaiah chapter 7, that this, this one who will come will be born of a virgin. And I, Isaiah chapter 53 makes it crystal clear that this one will suffer and will die and will bear the sins of his people. And in Psalm 16, he makes it clear that he's not going to remain dead, but that he will live eternally. Psalm 110, it's made clear to us that there's going to be somebody who is the Above King David, and David can refer to him as Lord, and yet he will not be God himself because God will sit him on his throne because he is God himself. In Daniel chapter 7, there is one who is the Son of Man who the Ancient of Days gives all authority. And here is what makes us unique, friends. Not that we celebrate Christmas. A lot of people celebrate Christmas. But that we have an understanding of what the incarnation is according to the Scriptures. That we understand the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. It is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, but, but it is far more than that. What I want us to do for the next few minutes is to consider the, the wisdom of God in the incarnation, to consider the generosity of God in the incarnation, and then to consider, for lack of a better term, the wonder of the Incarnation. 
what a wonderful thing it is that he has done. But we'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> the first thing that I want to point out to you, and I don't have a specific scripture. We're going to be looking at a number of places as we go, as we go through here this morning. The first thing I want to point out to you is the wisdom of God in the Incarnation. The fact that Jesus Christ came and was born, the fact that he, he really dwelled among us, lay in a manger in the stable that day, this is not an, an arbitrary thing that God has done. This is not just a, a, an expression of his generosity or his, his goodness towards us. In some ways, it, it is very much a key to a very specific lock. The incarnation is the beginning of a very specific problem that needed a very specific solution, a solution to that problem. And in one sense, uh, you know, the problem is us, really. The question of how can a God who is both loving and merciful and holy and just respond to a people like us, a people made in His image who have rebelled against Him, to a people whom He loves and yet whose sin demands judgment. And what is God going to do? That's the problem. The Bible agrees with the almost universal assessment of mankind that there is something not right about us. There's something wrong. There is a, there's a problem. Things should not be the way that they are. Now, the Bible is unique in that it identifies the problem not as you know, uh, having not reached our evolutionary potential yet or a lack of education or a lack of balance with the universe or a lack of religious observance or anything like that. The problem identified by the Scriptures is sin. That we, creatures made in God's image, we have forsaken our God and we've acted as if we are gods ourselves. We have conducted ourselves in rebellion against Him and in that way we have willingly cut ourselves off from Him who is the source of all that is good. Every evil thought, every harsh word, every selfish deed is not just the product of circumstances or the result of our experience, but it does issue from a, a heart of sin, a heart of selfishness, of stiff-necked pride and evil. And out of evil hearts come evil thoughts, evil words, evil deeds, come sin. And not just against one another, but against the God who made us. Against what He has called good and right and holy. Our sin is against Him. It is rebellion. It is treason that way. Now for God Himself to be just and to govern a universe in justice and righteousness, He's got to do something about that. When there is a problem in the house, the father in the house is responsible to deal with it, to bring about some sort of restoration, to bring about some sort of equilibrium. And the father of all creation has a responsibility to deal with us. He is just. He is holy. He must do something about us. And what is there to be done about us when we persist in our rebellion? when our very hearts are bent on it? What is there to do about us other than to treat us according to our sin? To judge us as guilty? 
and to remove us from this world, to cast us out of His presence and His goodness. I mean, that is, that is what hell is, friends. To be cast out, finally, of the goodness and blessing of God. And yet, He does love us. He's very clear. He is merciful. He's very clear. How can He give us what we deserve and yet show us the love and the mercy He desires? How can our God be just and holy and loving and merciful? That's the dilemma. That's the the problem. Now, the problem... We put it that way. It sounds like it's his problem. It's not really, though. It's not a problem with him. The problem is us. We exist. We exist in a state of rebellion against him. And the universe is in tension. We are the dilemma. We are the unsolvable problem. Ungrateful sinners, unjudged and yet loved by a holy God. Now, here's where the incarnation comes up. Because here's the solution that he devised to the problem. How is he going to be just? How is he going to be holy? And yet at the same time love sinners and show them mercy. Well, here, here's the key that he devised for that lock. He himself will come. He who is the creator will enter into creation he will be born, become part of this human race he made in his own image. And he will take the burden of our sin. He will take the guilt and the shame of our rebellion. And he will endure the judgment himself. There's the solution to the problem. The unimaginable solution to the problem. That he himself would come and would pay our debt. That he would come into his own creation, he'd shoulder, shoulder our burden for us, and that he would stand in the way of his own wrath and judgment. And that he would absorb it himself in his own person. That in him, in his sacrifice for us, his own justice and his own love would be satisfied. When he pours out the penalty of sin, upon Jesus Christ, who is God Himself, as He hangs on a cross. Now, of course, in order for God to bear the penalty for our sin, the penalty which is death, He has to be able to die. And the eternal God cannot die, not unless He becomes a man. Becomes a, a human being with a real life, a real body, real blood, unless he submits himself to the full fragility and weakness of humanity, who can kill God? How can God die? Well, only when God puts himself in this position. Only when God willingly submits himself. And here is the incarnation spoken about in Psalm 40, spoken about in Hebrews 10. A body you've prepared for me, says the Savior. That's the, that's the wild thing that's easy to forget about when we, when we look at the, the nativity scenes, when we look at the, uh, the children's picture books, when we watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. 
And you see the, the baby in the manger, and yes, the baby is so sweet. The baby came to die. That's why that baby's there. The baby came as a lamb to the slaughter. The lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He came to be born, not so that we would have a sweet baby to sing about, but so that there would be someone who can go to the cross and die for us, and that's someone who is God himself. The incarnation that God would enter creation and become a human being so that he might die. This is wild. I mean, to many it is blasphemous. To many it is utter foolishness. Nonsense. But friends, to us, to we who believe, it is the very wisdom of God. The genius of God. There could be no other way to solve the problem. You see? There could be no other key that would fit that lock. He himself had to come and bear our sins for us and die. The incarnation is in that way, it is an indication of the great wisdom of our God. That he would come up with something like this. I mean, we celebrate human genius, don't we? When we see genius in any of its forms, when we see it in, in science, when we see it in art, when we see it in music, when we see it in engineering, when someone comes up with a solution to a problem that we, we did not think was possible, it gives us something of a thrill, right? That's why there's TV shows like MacGyver. Is MacGyver still around? Yeah? I mean, that's, the whole, that's what's so thrilling, right? He, he comes up with these solutions to impossible problems. How's he going to get out of this one? Right? And then he does. Ah. Yeah. Well, friends, as we celebrate human genius and marvel at solutions to impossible dilemmas, well, friends, let's, let's marvel at what Christ has done in coming to be born for us. Let's marvel at the genius there. How did he solve this problem that could not be solved? Look what he has done. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Great indeed is this mystery revealed to us that God himself would be manifested in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Not only is our God wise, though, in the incarnation evidence of his wisdom, but it is also evidence of his generosity. There is a profound generosity about what he's done there. The incarnation is a profound act of tenderness, of compassion, of kindness, of generous giving. The union of the human and the divine is a common theme in world religion what is not a common theme in world religion is the humbling of God to bring himself down. 
and to enter into humanity. And that is unique to the revelation of the Scriptures. Not that, that man would exalt himself to attain levels of divinity, but that God would lower himself to be a man. That he would step down into our sorrow, oftentimes our self-made sorrow, into all of our pain and our weakness and our suffering. I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple couple days. Uh, the last few weeks, I have had a unique uh, vantage point to think about human suffering. I've spent a lot of time in the hospital. Uh, probably more time in the hospital than I've spent at home the last few weeks. I've spent a lot of time in the emergency room. I've spent a lot of time in the area where people are recovering from major surgeries. So I've spent a lot of hours in the ICU. I've spent some time on the the 12th floor at Ronald Memorial where people are recovering from traumatic brain injuries and strokes. I spent a lot of time at a nursing home. While my mother was, was in surgery, I was walking around on the, uh, the fifth floor of the hospital, the fourth floor of the hospital, and I walked down this hallway that had all these windows, and I stopped, and I was on the telephone with somebody looking out, and I didn't realize at first what I was looking at, but I was looking at a bunch of hearses pulling in to the parking lot uh, to be loaded and to go. My friends, there is so much suffering, so much suffering in the world. Uh, some of you have seen enough winters to realize some of that. In some ways, human suffering, human life is defined by suffering. It's full of suffering. And that is part of what life is after the fall. The cost of our rebellion against the God of life. It, thinking about that, I think, is significant because when Jesus Christ came and was born, it was not just a a beautiful, you know, nighttime scene with stars in the sky and, you know, uh, the gentle ox and sheep there and angels singing glory, glory. You know, it was the kind of world that has hospitals in it. Big hospitals, full of people. And every single room in the hospital has got real suffering in it. It's that kind of world that he came and submitted himself to. Not just singing. And he did so willingly. He did so, he chose to do so. He who was above it all chose to lower himself and to enter into this world with us. And again, all of the weakness, the frailty, the suffering. He knew a true human life. Our sins accepted. Oh, but all the consequences of the sin. In fact, even, even more so than us, right? He goes to the cross to endure our condemnation. The God who was above it all willingly humbles himself and comes down. Now, why did he do so? I just read it in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
He did so not to gain, but to give. And to give not something that would cost him nothing, but to give his very life. He put himself in the incarnation in a position to give his life because that was his purpose and to do so willingly. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Second Corinthians chapter 8, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what's, that's what's happening at the Incarnation. There is a profound act of generosity happening. He is giving himself to us. The God of heaven is giving himself to us. And it's not to gain something. I mean, what, to gain a bunch of half-hearted people who are going to talk about him a little bit while we open presents? Is that what he'd come to gain? No. No, friends. There was nothing lacking in him. He came to give. He came to give his own life so that we who had no claim on eternal life might be called the very sons and daughters of God. There is a profound generosity in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Again, we celebrate acts of generosity, don't we? When people give some huge amount of money to charity or they give their lives in some way of service, we celebrate it, rightfully so. Boy, especially when it involves sacrifice. In fact, we, we write songs about it. We make movies about it. We make long, multiple, hour superhero movies that end with an act of great sacrifice. Right? Now, friends, if we're going to celebrate that, let's celebrate this. Let's celebrate this act of generosity that cost our God so much that he gave himself so willingly. When somebody gives and they do so at a great cost, they lay down their life. You know what Romans chapter 5 says. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what God gives. Now one more thing. It's not, it's not just wise, the incarnation. There's not just wisdom manifest there. There's not just generosity. There is something of wonder there. And, and I'm, I'm searching for the right word here. When I say wonder, I, I mean that not in the contemporary sense. I don't mean wonderful like, boy, that movie was wonderful. Or boy, these shoes are wonderful that I got. Or what a wonderful cup of coffee that was. Or something. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the classic sense of, of something that is truly amazing. Something that is so beautiful, so unexpected, so inexplicable that it is in a sense beyond us. And we're moved to the place where all we can really do is, is stand back 
in awe and silence. Something that is wonderful in the sense that it is true, truly full of wonder. It's in that sense that I mean the incarnation is wonderful. It is so far beyond us. It is so unexpected. So seemingly impossible. That to our perceptions, I mean, paradoxes abound in the incarnation. That the creator of the universe would himself become part of his creation. How does that even work? That the infinite God would be born and die. That the infinite God whom the heavens could not contain. The heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool. That that he would be held in someone's arms. That he would lay in a manger. That he who governs all things would yet be submitted to his parents, would make himself subject to unjust human authorities. That he who is the eternal word and is himself omniscient, that he would learn to talk, that he would learn to walk. That he who is the Lord holding all things together, that he would become a frail human man subject to death. That he who is infinitely blessed would be a man of sorrows with us. That he who is holy would bear the shame and guilt and condemnation of his people. That that he who is the generous God who opens his hand and in providence satisfies all of his creation, that he himself would be denied and forsaken. The fact that our God would come and dwell with us would be one of us, is in some ways beyond the limits of human understanding. I think it's important that we recognize that. That that is not a weakness in the gospel narrative. There's a whole lot about the universe that we don't understand. Isn't that right? There's a whole lot about physics that we don't understand. There is a whole lot about biology that we don't understand. Again, I, I spent some time recently in the hospital interacting with neurologists and neurosurgeons and radiologists and oncologists and all kinds of other ists that I don't even remember all of them, speech pathologists. And um, what I kept hearing again and again is, uh, boy, there are really some limits to what we understand about even our own bodies. Uh, There are some limits to what we understand about the way our own minds work, about what's happening inside here. There is mystery there. We know some of it, but we don't know all of it. And I know there's some doctors in this room who will confirm that. Friends, If we can quickly arrive at places beyond our understanding, even in consideration of our own bodies, is it any surprise that we would likewise arrive at places in considering the living God that are beyond our own understanding? I think it is not unreasonable at all that we simply can't fit all of the truth about Him particularly uh, into a finite mind like this one. 
but the reality of God is a vast ocean and I have got, you know, an eight ounce plastic cup. And I'm not going to, I can't hold it all. There are some parts of it that are well beyond me. The incarnation is one of those things, that God would be a man, that he'd be a human being, that he'd walk on the earth, that people like me and you would look him in the eyes and they would hear the sound of his voice. They would see him as he goes and prays in Gethsemane and goes to the cross. How is that possible? When he dies on the cross, he who holds all things together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 says, how is that possible? Well, to us, it is impossible. But I want to suggest to you that the impossibility of it is something really wonderful. That is not an obstacle for us. That's not a reason to scoff and dismiss. It is rather a reason to stand back in awe and to worship. Not to be offended by the fact that we cannot understand how it is that this happens. But rather to humble ourselves and to worship Him. Along with the host of heaven in Revelation chapter 5. It says, worthy is the Lamb because He was slain. Because He came and had a body that could die. Worthy is the God who dies and pours out His blood and yet lives. I want to remind you here in closing, this, this is not a, a celebration of a season that we are engaged in. It isn't the celebration of a particular holiday spirit. It, it isn't even really the celebration of an event. I think this is what sets us apart as folks who are believing the Bible. It is a celebration of someone. It's, it's a celebration of a person. A, a marvelous and incredible person who would do something that is so unimaginable. It's not just that he did something so wise. He did something so generous. He did something so wonderful. It's that he himself is so wise. He himself is so generous. And he himself is so wonderful that he would do this thing that has changed all of the world for all time that he would do this thing that has given us life. Now, friends, if I know that as I talk about the incarnation of Jesus, I'm not talking about anything novel here, especially for those of us who've grown up in what's left of the Bible belt here. This is something very familiar. But I want to encourage you as I talk about him, if, if you have not yet recognized him, and I don't just mean what he did, but him, if you've not yet recognized how wise he is, how generous he is, how wonderful he is, you ought to do so. The same God lives today. It is in his presence that we worship. And friends, if, you've, if you have acknowledged who he is and you've forgotten about him, oh, be reminded. Remember. I was sitting in my office this last week, just a couple days ago. And it has been a, as I said, a, a wild few weeks for our family. Uh, they, it has been busyness and emergencies and crises here and there and meetings with doctors and waiting for doctors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Moving around in the hospital, in the nursing home. 
And because it has been so busy, it has been a week that has been thin with prayer for me. A lot of those kind of prayers where you, you cry out for help, but not a lot of that, that sweet focused time where you rest before the throne of grace. It's not been a, a great time for a lot of Bible reading for me. Right? It's been going to bed late and getting up early and being interrupted in the middle of things. It's not been a time of consistent family worship and family devotions for us. It's been a, a stressful time, and when it's a stressful time, I don't always eat like I ought to eat, and I sure don't exercise like I ought to exercise. It's been a time of irritation for me. I'm losing my temper with my kids when I shouldn't. I'm losing my temper with other people. I've issued a lot of apologies, some to neurosurgeons this week, right, for the way that I've talked to them or the things that I've said. My to-do list of things here at the church is piling up. People that have reached out to me and I haven't responded, I've been letting them down. And I sat down in my office the other day and I was feeling the stress from it. And then I remembered him. I remembered him. Not just what he did, I remembered who he is. I remembered the one who rules over all of creation and rules over me, and he rules over it all with such wisdom. He comes up with impossible solutions to problems, inconceivable, and then executes in his power. I remembered the one who came and gave so generous, generously to me when I had no interest in him in the slightest. I remember the one who did not withhold his own life from me. I remember the one who moved heaven and earth, who did the impossible, the inconceivable, to rescue me from my sin. He whose ways are so high above me and my understanding, when I remembered who he is, how he came for me willingly, I'll tell you, my heart really did melt again for the thousandth time again. My anxiety melted away for the thousandth time because of him, because of what it meant that he came and laid in a manger, because of what it meant that he went to the cross, because he went to the tomb and then came back and ascended into heaven and he lives even today. Somebody like this lives even today. That's what this is all about. So friends, worship him. He is worthy of our worship. Don't forget. Turn your attention to him. Turn your hearts in faith to him and remember him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, thank you for coming. There's something about the incarnation that tells us what you're like. Help us to listen. Help us to see you as you are, not just as a symbol. Oh, God, deliver us from that. Help us to see you as you truly are, the living God. Help us to love you and worship you for your wisdom, for your generosity, for your glory. Have mercy on us all this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.